Hello and welcome to the Gut Feeling Podcast, speaking with musicians on how they found their sound. I'm your host, Gregory Adams, and this latest episode is an interview with Lucas McFadden, a currently Vancouver-based drummer. Right now, he's just started practicing again with his D-beat band Madness Cartel after a two-year layover, and he also plays in a sugar-styled indie band called Tilted. For me, though, and probably for a bunch of Vancouver punk and hardcore kids of a certain age, Lucas was the drummer in Reserve 34, who were fairly omnipresent locally from 1996 to 2002. The reason for doing this interview when we did it was that this week marks 20 years since the last Reserve 34 show, which took place April 27th, 2002 at the Video Inn Studios in Vancouver. There's actually a recording of this, which was done by Colin and Terry from The Hive. I found it semi-recently, ripped it to my phone, and it's pretty rad, so I sent it to Lucas, and here we are. Throughout the talk, Lucas gets into the beginning of the band, realizing that in a guitarist's world, he needed to be a drummer. Being drawn to early 80s LA hardcore like the adolescents when his bandmates loved grunge. Early shows. Dialing up the speed in the mid-90s when hardcore was probably more focused on groove. He gets into moving down to LA to thrive in the ugliness of SoCal hardcore while playing in Carry On. Most of all, it touches on making music with guitarist Sky Tate, bassist Jared Moschenrost, vocalist Matt Smith, and a handful of other kids that came in and out of Reserve 34. I have a lot of memories tied up in this band. Uh, I saw them practice pretty much every week for two or three years of my teenage life. You know, first in Jared's bedroom, uh, eventually in a mansion in Shaughnessy, which comes up in the talk. Um, Yeah, I loved Reserve 34. They were pretty goofy out the gate with songs about dogs pissing on your shoes and telling off your parents. And then, little by little, and and I mean this in the best way, uh, they they got good. Before we hop into this, I just want to say that Gut Feeling is both a podcast and an email newsletter. You can find the full archive of interviews, label guides, gear talks, and more over at buttondown.email slash gutfeeling, where you can likewise sign up to receive the email, which hits you with both the print pieces and the podcasts. I have a ton of unheard Reserve 34 material in my hands, uh, from practice tapes to abandoned demos to live broadcasts from CITR Campus Radio. Uh, I also have their records, including a 7-inch on Moo Cow out of Wisconsin, the Rain City Games 10-inch on M Records, and the Everything discography on Specimen 32. A lot of that is out of print, um, and, and a lot of it is just straight up unheard, so I'm splicing a bunch of this into the talk. Uh, without further ado, uh, this is Lucas from Reserve 34. I hope you enjoy. Well, reason reason I reached out is that yeah. we are uh, five days out from the this this day right now from the 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 twentieth anniversary of the final Reserve Thirty Four show, uh, okay. uh, b- barring a couple reunions. But yeah, but yeah barring the, whatever happened there, yeah. But uh, yeah. April twenty seventh, two thousand two, uh, it was yeah. something that I've had that recording um, of the show like just on yeah. my phone. So I was thinking about. Uh, getting into reserve 34 with you yeah for sure absolutely i, I don't i don't know absolutely. but maybe 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 do we talk about the show first or, or do we talk about six months no six months six years prior, prior to that to, how, how do mean, we go about this i don't remember much of that show to be perfectly honest i i think at that time i'd i'd been back up from la for a bit 
And, uh, and we were doing that again. And that, yeah, that was sort of the time period where we ended up playing a number of shows that got billed as, as last shows. And that's sort of all I remember about it. And this was the one that would have been at video in, was it? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember too much of the show other than it was the only show that Mark played with us and me. And it was also the release show for that final seven inch. Uh, yeah. And yeah, that was sort of, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't remember a huge amount about that show, though. No. Okay. Not really. Well, yeah. well, let, let's go back a few years then. Yeah. Let's, let's go back yeah. to 1996-ish, even before then. Yeah. Like, uh, even so before when, that. When, when, do, when do you start going to shows in Vancouver? Maybe that's the first it, part of it. And and were those larger uh, shows? And, and no. uh, Very early, late 94, early 95, I'm going to like uh, community center shows in Vancouver with stuff that was i don't know punk adjacent but nobody really knew what they were doing and uh so it was just kids with guitars and stuff and then uh the first show show i'd say that i went to was uh south wall of lonsdale in north vancouver and that was dbs disfigurings utopia the dunderheads and area 51 and that's like the first show show and me and sky from reserve 34 who i went to high school with we went to that together and that was sort of like it that was where we went okay we're, we're into this yeah. um and then uh that summer there were a few shows and we were like i remember we ended up seeing like circle jerks that fall and stuff like that uh, i think that was the year um, and then I was, I'd been trying to get a band going for a very long time in my mind, at least I thought it was a very long time. Like I thought it would be a cool idea since I was like 11. Um, and I'd played guitar and stuff. And around that time, I kind of was like, well, nobody needs guitar players. Uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to play drums. And <laughs> so I managed to convince my dad to get me a cheap drum kit which he dropped at my mom's house they're long since divorced at this time and then he fucked off and left me with a drum kit there which yep. in retrospect was kind of funny and i started banging on that and trying to find people to play with um and the first i, I was finding people usually sky was involved and we get other people involved um there were a few guys there was this kid who went to kits who called himself shithead and had a mohawk and later went on to be like some terrible white supremacist. He was in the band for a bit. Um, We got rid of him. him. I believe he got beat up and thrown in the sea one night. Um, And then uh, we got Jared and uh, we got Jared. And then uh, this guy, Matt Ellis from Port Coquitlam. And then we had this kid, Nathan Thodeson singing. And that was in 96. Um, and uh, Nathan was this kid from East Van. Uh, and then I wasn't really liking Nathan. And I remember it was would have been April 20th, 96. I remember that. Matt Smith remembers that. Because uh, Voodoo Glow Skulls were supposed to play at the town pump. Yeah. And, uh, and they didn't make it across the border or something like that. And so yep. we were all there. And I was like, well, let's go practice to some of the guys who are there. And let's go make music. And people were like well, we have to get Nathan. And I called him from a payphone. He didn't pick up. And I was like, well, fuck it. He's out of the band. This is Matt. And Matt Smith was there. And I was like, do you want to play? And he's like, cool, I'll come and I'll do it. And then, uh, and that was sort of, I think that that was when we were still calling ourselves poo and things like that. Uh, and uh, which was probably the better of a number of names that we'd floated yeah. at that time. And uh, then shortly thereafter, 
I think I liked the idea of a four piece better because we had this kid, Matt Ellis, playing guitar. Um, so I called him up and kicked him out. He wasn't very good either, but I remember I called him up and kicked him out. And uh, and yeah, that was uh, that was sort of the beginning of Reserve 34. We played, I think we played a battle of the bands at Sealand Hall, and that was the first show that might have been even May that year or something. Yeah. I can't, you might remember. I do um, remember. Yeah. <laughs> that was the. We were we were on the bill as Poo, and yeah. then but we changed our name like uh, in the in the run up to that show, and yeah. then that so that would have been the first show as Reserve Thirty Four. Well, yeah. I, I think I think there's a lot to un- unpack in, in, in that, uh, but, but maybe maybe uh, maybe maybe just start because yeah. Sky has popped up a couple times already in the conversation. Okay. Yeah, so maybe yeah. like. If if you want to get into you know we 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 now know who was in the band in in the yeah. in the very beginnings but who are these people like how how do you meet Sky uh, Sky Tate uh, who is the, the the guitarist of Pooh later Reserve Thirty Four I mean yeah Sky Sky wrote most of the stuff for that band uh, Sky was this guy he like uh, when I met him he wasn't really into I went to high school with him and we met in grade eight and uh, he wasn't really into punk at all but. I sort of saw the potential there. I was like, well, we can, this is raw materials. I can do something with this kid who plays guitar. Yeah. And uh, he, he was into a lot of alternative and sort of, you know, grunge for lack of a better term at the time. And, uh, and so I started trying to get him into that stuff and he, he was open to it. He never really quite committed to the bit. I think uh, he was always into, he was always a bit of a, a strange guy. And so he wasn't really as, fully into that one thing as I was uh, but I liked him he lived two blocks away and uh, and he had a guitar and he was down to do whatever so uh, I found him and I think uh, Jared was two years older than us at the time and I met him at one of those sort of weird community center shows I mentioned previously mm-hmm. and he uh, he was yeah 16 so we were 14 and he played in a band called Runt um, I don't even remember what they sounded like. I thought they were pretty sick, but I think they were probably yeah. terrible. I was going to ask if if, yeah. if if you had seen Runt because because I, I I know Jared because he was like childhood friends with one of my childhood friends kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and when he grew up in Surrey, moved out to Vancouver, and then like every couple birthday parties for one guy, he'd he'd show yeah. up kind of thing. Uh, and and we knew he was in a band called Runt, but but we never actually yeah. saw Runt. We we thought I think the first time we tried to see Reserve Thirty Four, we thought we were seeing Runt yeah yeah i saw runt a couple times uh because i also like i i knew chris ferguson who sang in that band and i knew jessica who played guitar in that band i forget who played drums um but uh like somehow i got jared's number and i just called him up like i met him at some of those shows and i just called him up and said do you want to come do this thing and he was down and uh and so he came to my mom's house and practiced um i feel like matt ellis was similarly at one of those early early sort of small neighborhood shows uh he was from poco but he we knew each other through a bunch of people and he was again he wasn't fully into punk and i was having a hard time finding people who were into punk and hardcore but like like he had long hair and an undercut and stuff which i thought was pretty whack but like he was again he had a guitar and was interested so that's how i found him and I honestly don't remember how I found that kid, Nathan, uh, yeah. but, but I did somehow. Um, I, yeah. He was just this stoner from, 
from East Vancouver who really liked Screeching Weasel. Like that was sort of all he was into. And, yeah. But again, he was in the band for a couple months. And then uh, Matt would be able to speak to it probably better than I would. But Matt and I met, uh, I think, just like hanging out with different groups of people like uh, in the punk scene, the early punk scene. And uh, and we got along really well. And I, <laughs> he remembers that we... The first night we met, I think he took me back to his place in North Van and I sat silently at the back of the bus the whole time. And then when we got off the bus, I jumped up at the window and I'd been saving spit up in my mouth and I spat all over everyone in the back of the bus. And Matt was yeah. like, okay, I'll hang with this guy. Yeah, and that's yeah. how we bonded initially. <laughs> Seems like a pretty cool thing to have. <laughs> Um, maybe maybe well, rewinding on on, on a bit yeah. of that uh you're talking about how sky and and matt ellis uh yeah. also, also known as that guy yeah that guy yeah yeah uh n- neither of them were necessarily uh uh fully embracing punk no i'll say no. like so so what in your mind like what are, what are you trying to uh lock on to like who are who are you into what what are you aspiring uh, to be as as a nascent punk band the like i hadn't heard much and i think like most people there was like right around my age you know things jump off with uh you know green day and the offspring and all that comes out the things that i was really focusing on is i remember i got like everyone else i got sex pistols never mind the bollocks and uh and minor threat complete discography and then i also got this comp from this kid devin at high school uh who was and, and it was all um, Southern California, early punk and hardcore, like adolescence, TSOL, DI, Agent Orange, things like that. And it was that comp. And I, I thought all that stuff was fucking incredible. And so in my head, I wanted something uh, kind of like uh, Minor Threat and that stuff, uh, something fast, basically. And then I'd also, there was that, uh, was it Guitar School that had a, that had a special on hardcore? <laughs> um that mentioned like it wasn't the one that had the sex pistols cover the guitar world it was a guitar school yeah yeah there there was there was a really good guitar world one that has like kind of like here are the 10 uh hardcore records to get yeah Yeah. it could be that and and that sort of uh showed me a few things but even then because you know it was the mid 90s it was very hard for me to track that stuff down like I, I basically sort of had an idea of what half of it sounded like and i was able to find some of it yeah. um but i i wanted a fast punk band that's sort of what i thought and sky listened to a lot of nirvana you know like he was still in that stage um yeah. and uh and i don't really know what that guy what matt was listening to but uh i was really uh, intent on coaching them towards something that i thought was cooler for sure yeah. As as you're you know uh you you you're a, a little kid on a big kit at the time yeah. uh, like like how how do you you know you you're, you're talking about how you how you want it to be kind of speed forward you know you want it to be fast yeah. like what, what do you remember yeah. the learning curve uh with with drums because even seeing the band from from the the beginning you know there there is a drastic learning curve that that you're witnessing in in real oh, yeah. time kind of thing well i like we played our first show i think that was with nathan we played actually yeah we played our first show as poo or whatever at the submission hold house on first avenue and that was like weeks after i'd started playing like i showed up with drumsticks and like 
and nobody had shown me anything. I kind of, I listened to some stuff. Like I remember listening to no effects records and being like, well, this seems like he's doing this. So I'll do that. Um, but I had no idea. And so like, yeah, if you watch like the, the, the videos of like that first year are hilarious. Cause like, I'm sure there's one floating around on YouTube that's at Southwell. It's absolutely mm-hmm. hilarious. Cause nobody knows what they're doing. And, uh, and I think, uh, it didn't quite, it clicked. I remember, um, when would that have been? It was in 96. Oh, it was that big show with like, uh, the AFI show in, uh, at, at Sealand. Like it was uh, the day after my birthday in 96. And I remember that was the first time that I went from sort of doing this scissor beat spazzy shit to so, sort of being able to play. And I remember the penny dropping then, uh, yeah. but and I think that was because I'd started actually watching people and things like that. But I was, I was in no way a drummer. I don't really even know if, if I still am, I'm still pretty much a one trick pony when it comes to drums. Like I, I don't have many tricks in the bag and I, I never really made much of an effort to expand that, that repertoire once yeah. I figured out what I needed. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what was happening there for sure. Like I, I started playing drums as a utilitarian thing. Like it was, I want to be in a band. Like I want to be in a band so bad. Nobody needs guitar players. I kind of suck at guitar anyway. Like I need to play drums. And that's sort of what that was. And I just figured it out that first year. And honestly, I I don't think I really got good or approached good until like my late teens, early twenties. And, uh, I, all I was able to do for a very long time was play really fucking fast because that's what I wanted to do. So I would just try and play as fast as I could. And then that got faster and faster, yeah. basically, which is why you listen to some of that early reserve stuff. And it's, it's ridiculous. Like it's just so hilariously fast, but yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned going to like community hall shows. You, you mentioned yeah. playing Sealand Hall for the AFI show. Uh, yeah. uh, Town Town Pump was where you didn't see the Voodoo Glow Skulls. Uh, yeah. But just kind of going back to Jen and Andy's spot on, oh, yeah. on First Avenue, like that was a yeah. pretty unique kind of basement, kind of grungy uh, venue. Yeah. Like, what what do you remember about that setup? I remember uh, that was sort of. <sighs> I don't know if we were in the thick of it yet, but that was very nineties ebullition, you know, uh, sort of hippie punk shit. And I knew that that was punk, but I didn't really have much in common with it. So I felt kind of weird there, but Andy from submission hold was so excited that these like weird children wanted to come play punk rock, that he was actually quite welcoming. And there were a lot of people, I remember at that first show, especially there were a number of people who didn't know why we were there because we weren't doing this, weird avant-garde like like strange eat more garlic punk and uh (laughs) and we were just playing like scissor beat punk with songs about like what we thought was funny shit and uh and and but andy was he was like this is great he's like this is fucking great i like what you guys are doing and i remember that very well from that first show there i think we played other times in that basement it was a very small basement if i remember correctly Mm -hmm. um but yeah like it was it was cool i mean we there were some people who clearly didn't want us there uh stinking up the place with our juvenile punk rock but uh andy from submission hold was 100 percent about it I don't even know if he'd remember that, but yeah, that was, <laughs> he was definitely like uh, extremely supportive, at least that night, and a few others for sure. Oh, I know why he will watch you, you, you really suck, and I don't give a fuck. 
Well, let's let's get into the specifics of juvenile yeah. punk rock. Like, like yeah. in, in the very beginning, like uh, a, a few of you wrote the lyrics. I'm, I'm wondering, yeah. maybe I'll start this off by reciting a poem, if, if I may. <laughs> I don't like you or what you do. You really <laughs> suck. And I don't give a fuck about your ways. So go away. Do your worst. And I'll just say, piss off. That that was about Sky's stepdad, Ian. Yeah. Classic <laughs> song. What, yeah. I, I, I've never been a lyric guy. I'll, I'll be yeah. a, across the board <laughs> through through years of studying music, for yeah. lack of a better term right now. But man, those are those are drilled into my brain. That's that's yeah. That's just, that was, just pure, pure teenage uh, uh, yeah. vitriol it, there. Yeah. I feel like it's even pre-teenage. Like some of our stuff, I don't know. I'd like. I, I've listened to some of that and read it back and I just, you know, it doesn't seem like we were 14 even. It seems like we were 10, but I yeah. don't know. I mean, I don't think, um, yeah, that was definitely about, uh, about Sky's stepdad who was this asshole named Ian. I remember everyone thought Ian was an asshole. My parents thought Ian was an <laughs> asshole. He was an asshole, but, uh, I'd say that I continue. Yeah, absolutely. Fuck. Ian. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, no um yeah that's what that was about and they, uh, that that sky meant that yeah sky yeah. sky felt that for from sure. the heart what uh, <laughs> what can you tell me about smelly feet i forget what that was about i feel like that was a sky thing as well because it's very sort of weird and nonsensical like the stuff about dogs peeing on your shoes and stuff yeah. like i feel like that was uh that was a sky thing and he thought it was very funny and again i I, I think the rest of us were sort of like, cool. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> Why not? There, there was, there was no, like nothing was rejected in the first year when we were all 14 years old and stuff like that. We had no idea what we were doing. We didn't like, no one was telling us what was right or what was wrong. So yeah. like that you get a wide variety of sort of extremely goofy shit. And I think that was the other thing is like, initially that goofiness was definitely something we leaned into because we were goofy nerdy kids right so yeah i don't know but yeah i have no idea where sky came up with that one and yeah. I, I don't think he does either but yeah of of, of uh, like the first batch of songs what what do you remember writing the lyrics to uh oh i wrote like uh evicted about how my my neighbors who were surgeons didn't like us playing uh, music and it was really loud and they kicked us out and we had to go play in a rehearsal space. Yeah. I think I co-wrote that with Matt maybe. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's actually interesting. So, so you started playing out in, in your place, your, your parents, yeah. place, your, your mom's place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you had to move into a rehearsal space, which is fortuitous yeah. because yeah. the band started as poo becomes reserve 34 yeah. because. Yeah. Well, because we went, well, when we got kicked out of my mom's house, uh, because the whole block could hear us playing like terrible music. And uh, we ended up down at this place, uh, First Music. It was like on First Street and, uh, and but First Street and Fourth or Fifth. Um, and it was just this shitty rehearsal space. It was very cheap. Um, and there was a parking spot that was sort of half a parking spot outside and it was spot 34 and it said reserved 34 on it. And we were trying to come up with a name and we, uh, 
we like we couldn't and then i don't know who it was i don't know if you would remember if matt would remember i don't know but somebody was outside and was like that's a pretty sick name like reserved 34 and we were like nah the d sucks like <laughs> and and like the, the d fucks it up and so we were like well we got to take it off and we went inside and asked the guys at the rehearsal space if they had anything that would smash the d off the concrete and and they were like yeah we have a sledgehammer and so we went outside and like smashed the pavement with a sledgehammer until it said reserve 34. And then we were like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And that was sort of where it came from. So the proprietors gave you the sledgehammer. Did they think yeah. you were just going to go wild on, on I have their no idea. property? <laughs> like it, that seems <laughs> they, like a really they, insane thing to just to let some kids do. They used to let us do all sorts. Well, it, it reached a point. Uh, we used to, they used to let us go up on the roof and just, it was a rehearsal space. So there were garbage cans full of beer bottles and we would just take those on the roof and throw beer bottles at the wall and just smash glass for like long periods of times. So, like the neighbors would get very upset about that, but the guys, at the rehearsal space had no problem with it. We did unsuccessfully steal a bunch of shit from them and that kind of ended our relationship with them. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but largely because we stole a bunch of it, but then also hit a bunch of it in our, guitar cases and shit which we then left there yeah for to pick up later and then they found a bunch of their shit in there and so we weren't able to go there so that that was the yeah, line, understandable apparently. yeah there you <laughs> Us kid, uh, another one, disenchanted, that, disenfranchised youth. What what can you tell me about the dying seagull? Oh, that was me. Like when my voice was changing, um, like my voice would go, like my my voice cracked to a pretty extreme degree. I think like I went from being five feet tall and ninety pounds to being like six feet in ten months or something at some point. So I grew rapidly and awkwardly and my vocal cords were no exception to that and i would always uh do this thing where i could crack my vocals my vocal cords and make them do this wild squawk that was known as the dying seagull which was then incorporated into toys r us kid which was a sky composition yeah Yeah. (laughs) um how does the dying seagull uh relate to a baby bird eating chips fuck i forget i remember that was an imitation i did where i would smash a bunch of chips on the table and then basically smash my face into them like to pretend to eat them like a bird yeah i i don't know if i incorporated the two of them together but that sounds like something i might have done at that age for sure (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm still going through some some first wave stuff what can you tell me about the song caramilky Oh, that was like this sort of freeform thing that Sky did where we just smashed two chords and Sky would rant about how he didn't know how they got the caramel in the caramel bar. Yeah. And then like we just sort of watch each other till we got to the chorus and then we'd play this like fast two note chorus while Sky screamed about that that ad that was an ad at the time, which was how do they get the caramel in the caramel bar? Again, yeah. I'm sure we thought this was fucking funny. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't really, but I'm sure we thought it was fucking hilarious. Yeah. Um I think you kind of hint at this at, at at being around the time you play the AFI show, which is October 5th, 1996. 
So, yeah, uh, the day after I, my 15th birthday. Yeah, it's true. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't I, I I'm saying this endearingly, but like wh- where where is the point where you feel that Reserve 34 gets legitimately good? Like what what is the first good I don't Reserve know. 34 song? <laughs> the first, I still think it was years after that. I don't know. Like, like I don't think we really. I think it was probably '97 or '98 when we, when we found some records and actually figured some shit out that we wanted to do, um, and or that we could agree on to some degree. Uh, that show was definitely the first real show we played. I mean, we honestly we didn't play that many shows or that many big shows even. But that was also the first show, like I said, where I kind of had halfway figured out sort of how to play. And that uh, that definitely changed things up for sure. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I didn't we didn't really have anything good until we did those sessions at Big Midget, some of which became that first seven inch. But those I like for sure. I'll I'll still listen to that and be like, oh, that was cool that I did that when I was 16 or whatever. But yeah. uh, before that, everything else, I'm like, oh, this is these are dark marks on my permanent record. <laughs> but uh. so, so with that, the 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 big midget sessions, um, yeah. Reserve Thirty Four did put out the Everything compilation a few years after the band broke up, uh, yeah. which which purports to say that there's everything on there, but there's not. I don't think it is. It's no, not. No, there it's there not. are a few. No. Do you remember recording? Can you hear the vacuum? Which was early, early demo. Like Matt Smith yes. years ago gave me a just like a blank tape full of unreleased Reserve yeah. Thirty Four sessions. But uh, there Can- there are quite a few pre pre seven inch demos that that never came yeah. out. Can you hear the vacuum? I think was the first demo. Maybe um, we recorded that at Lord Bing, which was the high school that me and Sky went to. Uh, it had, at least for the time, and as far as the high school was concerned, it had a pretty good recording studio because the band teacher was the keyboard player from Trooper, um, yeah. who'd been who'd been uh, also kicked out of uh, kicked out of uh, Brian Adams' band and was real bummed out about it and super <laughs> bitter, but like went to become a band teacher and actually started this really good music program. Is Frank Ludwig, Mr. Ludwig, and yeah. uh, and he. Uh, he sort of uh, like me and Sky were in some of his music classes. He thought we were assholes and he thought we couldn't play anything and that there was nothing good there. But he was interested in the fact that we wanted to play music and record music. And so he gave us an evening to go in there and record. And I don't even who, know who we recorded it with. I think it was, um, it was this kid. All I remember is he had a bowl cut and he was a couple years older than us. He played in a really shitty band called Dolomite. Um, and he, he recorded us and it's terrible. It's like, it's a ghastly recording. And the, (laughs) can you hear the vacuum is because the custodian was like vacuuming the band room at the time, I think. And so like, we were trying to get takes off, uh, without the vacuum noise in the back. (laughs) Yeah. And we recorded that. And like, even then we were like, I, I think we put it out maybe i don't know but we weren't very proud of it even then and shortly after that we recorded a four-track demo with uh andrew cairns 
yeah. uh, who had convinced us that he knew what he was doing and like and was he was 19 at the time i think so we thought he was old and like fully clued up yeah, and in the season pro yeah yeah well, maybe, and, maybe uh, just, re- just yeah, stopping okay, on that for a second ahead. so yeah. who is who is andrew cairns i i know who andrew cairns is but but explain who andrew cairns is in the context of you know this this uh uh, uh wise sage 19 year old <laughs> punk kid that is uh recording yeah. Reserve 34 in, in Jared's bedroom. Yeah, he was uh, he was this kid. He was 19. He was from North Bend. Uh, he played in a band called Honey Bucket at the time. And they'd done a recording. I don't think they ever uh, released it. But to our ears, it was good. I think it may have been like approaching passable, but I'm not sure. Yeah, probably not. But uh, he played shows. He'd been in a studio. Um he told us he was going to put out a, a demo for us on his label, Suburban Records, I remember. And so we were like, oh, this guy knows what's up. And uh, like uh, we, were, we were friends with him for years after that, too. But I remember uh, we just liked him. There, there's an old uh, <laughs> there's an old video of us playing. And then he grabs the mic and comes out. He's like, yeah, do you guys like Reserve 34? Yeah, check out their new demo coming out on Suburban Records. Like he was acting like king shit at like Ceylon Hall and stuff. So yeah. we were like, okay, this guy knows what's up. <laughs> and uh and he didn't like the demo we recorded at, at the high school at lord bang so and neither did we so he rented a four track from long McQuaid and like a, a pa mixer and um and we went into jared's bedroom with a bunch of mics and recorded like the most blown out demo tape you've ever heard because andrew thought that the way to get the sickest sound was to just dime everything yeah and uh and so it's just completely maxed out it's it's i kind of like it now when i hear it but yeah, yeah. it was pretty it's pretty hilarious. it is it is in the red yeah i i, yeah. I, I listened to that one uh just just before uh we did yeah. this uh, uh yeah, yeah it's it's like it's like a uh the david bowie mix of of raw power yeah like th- that's yeah, that's no, another it's... one that's famously just in in the red just gross yeah <laughs> but we but that was that was a time when we were actually maybe sort of starting to to play properly a bit and uh and yeah i don't know it and like i remember in in evicted that song we were stoked because sky kind of did what we thought was a shredding solo in it because it started with like a band and there was some some noodling going on and we thought that was pretty sick yeah and the, f- uh, the flaming and solo that, the flaming, yes, flaming yeah. solos, yeah. yeah. And so we we were like, oh, okay, we're coming into our own here for sure on that <laughs> demo. Yeah. Um. What What do you remember about other bands that you're playing with at this time? Like, did did Reserve Thirty Four, which which is a mix of uh, three kids from Point Grey, which is kind of near yeah. UBC uh, grounds, uh, and Matt yeah. Smith living in North Vancouver. Like, where did yeah. you fit in amongst the other teens? of this time uh, the other, like, the other, because you, uh, you, you mentioned you mentioned dbs as being like one of the first yeah. bands that you saw there there are some other bands uh utopia turns into stick shift who reserve 34 play yeah. shows with where does yeah. reserve 34 fit into the lower mainland punk rock scene circa 1996 we didn't for a while and like north van was really up itself at the time because dbs had come out and they were like legitimately getting play on much music and stuff like that and they'd put out records and they were teenagers and they put out like like actual records and that was uh so everyone like they were the gold standard and so uh and and they were always on my timeline too like if i hadn't put out a fucking record by the time i was 16 i was a fucking loser because these guys had done it and like that was my thinking and uh 
but they were the gold standard and then them and their their little their little goons up in north Ann, uh in lynn valley um they they were like the cool kids and stuff and it took them a while to warm up to us because uh, like the bank we we're from vancouver we we're from the west side of vancouver so like we kind of actually had some connection with uh with dbs because their girlfriends went to our high school and stuff like that so that's how yeah. we kind of found out about some of the shows okay but um yeah i don't know they it, it took them a while to warm up to us that all those guys kind of had a problem with matt for a bit too uh i think just because they didn't know him and like they were cocky little shits right and i i think <laughs> i remember it, it turned the corner they always used to hang at this park in Lynn Valley, Princess Park. And uh, I, we went to a party there. And I remember them being kind of cool with us there, like the dudes from the Sucklings and stuff. Yeah. And uh, and Utopia, Stick Shift and things like that. And um, yeah, that, that's sort of when it turned the corner. But for a while, they didn't really like us very much. I mean, yeah. we were alien to them. We were younger, for sure. But we also, like, we were coming out of a part of town uh, that hadn't really produced anything in a while. I don't think if ever. And so uh, there were people who didn't know really who we were and, yeah. you know, we were just showing up and doing that. And so, yeah. As, as the band is improving, uh, uh, mm -hmm. th there is kind of like a style shift. You're obviously into punk. You're into like early hardcore, like minor threat uh, falling mm -hmm. into gorilla biscuits. How is that like mm -hmm. a turning point for reserve 34? Honestly, I know that um, I feel like uh, when was it like the the in-flight program that comp coming out on um, that rev comp coming out really shifted things quite a bit. I think I think for a lot of people my age it did, but that that sort of uh, th that offered up Gorilla Biscuits. Not, not even songs that I ended up liking, but um, uh, I'll hold on. There's a dog fight. Just a second. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, the uh, I, I seem to remember us all getting the the in-flight program, and uh, and yeah, it, I really like Judge and then Gorilla Biscuits and all that. Um, fuck, I do know that I got the Gorilla Biscuits LP at Track Records and stuff like that, but I I don't remember exactly when that became our focus. When we were like, oh, we're gonna be like a hardcore band like this, I. I remember buying the Gorilla Biscuits uh, seven inch washout, I think. And, uh, but yeah, I, I can't remember exactly when that happened, but I feel like the, the Rev in flight program really shifted shit for like a bunch of 15 year olds who found that for sure. Yeah, for sure. But I can't and then, remember. And then, then you start covering breaking free, which, which is also becomes like um, a big part of the set for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. And I think that, yeah, like I think Matt really liked that song. So he was the one who pushed for that. And then I think us being into it um, uh, made some people around us who probably wouldn't have even cared about it and be interested in it too. People like, you know, Hayden and Ryan Lodge and all the people who sort of hung out around us, but weren't, you know, capital H hardcore kids or punk kids or whatever. Like yeah. they were just sort of kicking it with us. But yeah, I mean, that was a huge, it, that at least gave us a, a goal that we could all, all agree on, that we wanted to play something that at least sounded like this, you know? Yeah. yeah. 
So, so the first thing that Reserve Thirty Four officially releases is is the Twenty Eight Hours demo tape, which is not yeah. released on Suburban Records, but it is released no. on Cut Rate Records, which is which is Andrew Andrew Cairns. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, how how did you get to um, this this point where you're you're comfortable with the music that you're recording and and you want to release it? That um, we managed to get um, we got some recording time through Jared's high school through a work experience thing because uh, he said he wanted to be a recording engineer. So they set him up uh, at Downtown Sound, which was across from the penthouse, the strip club. It's now condos and stuff. Um, But uh, it was a really grimy studio, uh, notably recorded uh, 5440 Smiling Buddha Cabaret. I think that's the only thing they did that was of note. Um, And we went in there and this guy, Murray, who was an asshole cokehead, just kind of let us take over the studio after hours for a few days. And... um, this guy, Krusty, who lived in the basement and slept on the floor, helped us figure out the uh, uh, how to press record on a tape player and kind of give us a ship mix. And we would we'd start the tape, we'd hit record, run down the stairs into the live room, play the set and go back up and see what we had. And we did that for, I think, four nights and uh, and then came up with that demo. And we were like, OK, this is solid. And. We thought that was good. I totally actually, I forgot about that. I forgot about that demo altogether, but yeah, <laughs> even though it was the first thing, but yeah, that's, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I wrote a couple songs off that and Sky wrote a couple songs off that. And yeah, I think we were pretty proud of that when it happened for sure. Uh, for sure. What can you tell me about uh, the legacy of use your head, which is uh, on this demo? What, what is that song? And, and, you know, let's, <sighs> let's get into the arc of it. Yeah, that song is, if I remember correctly, uh, a fictional song about a drunk driver. Uh, And I think that Sky wrote that one as well. We didn't know that Uniform Choice really existed or had a song called Use Your Head. Um, And uh, and yeah, I, I it it was the lyrics to it were horrible, if I remember correctly, and really fucking corny and like just not good at all the song itself i think is kind of strong when i listen to it now like yeah. for, for what for how old we were but yeah i don't know uh the lyrics involved like literally the line put down the rum and stuff like that as, yeah. as though rum is like it's, it's very specific abused. yeah <laughs> yeah like, like that it's, it's not just know. your I, I guess uh, some some of you are straight edge at this point but but yeah it, uh, the rum rum is a very specific uh, I know. thing I mean, that you it don't was, necessarily hear in a straight edge anthem. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I think uh, me and Sky were fully like X'd up straight edge at this point. Matt Smith was by default, and Jared never ever was. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, no that that was the that's really the only thing I remember about it. And I remember people roasting us for that then, like like uh you know they're oh no that's ridiculous like we're all children but that's ridiculous why would you mention rum i was like yeah no, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um this is a bit of a time jump but and we kind of kind of hinted at this uh vis-a-vis the 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 unreleased demo being recorded in jared's uh bedroom yeah. in, in in point gray you you guys did practice there for a while but eventually you move into this is actually one of i, I kind of want to get into this because i think this is fascinating you move into robin mm-hmm. strachan's basement who is a friend of yes. jared's like yeah. how does robin strachan fit into this picture um 
Jared went to like a, a school for a private school for bad kids, effectively, like where where just colossal fuck ups with wealthy parents went, and uh, and like uh, and that's that's where like he ended up. Uh, uh, I almost ended up there, but um, uh, side note: Bill Hemi from the Point of Sticks was the music teacher there, and that helped us out a little bit too. Yeah. But uh, punk rock cred. Um, yeah like uh so jared went there and robin was one of the the wayward youth that were forced to wear uh uniforms and go to strictly structured 20-minute classes and shit like that it's a place called fraser academy um and uh jared just started bringing him around he liked to play guitar he again he wasn't really into uh punk or hardcore until he met us and then he got into it at least for a few years there um his parents uh, were very well to do and had a really big house in Shaughnessy in Vancouver. Um, his dad was uh, working and not around that much. His mom was this, uh, this older lady who just like was bored and liked having kids around. And so she, uh, she started, she would let us come practice at the house and feed us. And so we moved into practicing at Robin's basement and this, it was a mansion uh, and there was a pool in the backyard and she would make us spaghetti and garlic bread. And, uh, and that became like a weekly thing. And we were there for a while um, and other bands practiced there, like things that we try to get going and stuff. But basically Robin's mom, Mrs. Strachan, uh, let us come and take over her house. Cause she thought it was cool to have kids around. Yeah. And that was sort of it. And like, Robin was never in the band. That's like what's important to state there. I, I think that that's that's kind of what I want to yeah. hinge on. So so the, yeah. back, backtracking just a bit. So like yeah, uh, not not to rope myself into this, but like during yeah, the, no, no, the, sure. during the Jared bedroom yeah. basement part of it, yeah. like it was essentially yeah. like a routine of like four or five like clowns like coming over to Jared's to watch you guys practice and then we'd fuck yeah. off and do whatever on on, on, on yeah, Friday yeah. night kind of thing. Yeah. When it gets to Robin's place, we also come along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, everyone so comes it's, along. So yeah. it's a mix of a four children that aren't theirs making like yeah. a racket. <laughs> and then like yeah. <laughs> four or five other random strange children that just kind yeah. of invade their house and 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 yeah. what, like you said robin is never in the band like this this no, whole no, family not. has like the patience of of saints <laughs> like well, we it's, would, it's a really we funny situation up. we were we were welcome there when robin wasn't there which is the other like we would turn up and go hang out in robin's bedroom when he wasn't <laughs> there like he would come home from school and find us in his shit um and yeah, like you say, it was Jer- Jared's house was nice because we could practice there. And Jared's parents are or were, for lack of a better word, like just disinterested in parenting, at least at that time. And like so we could get away with whatever. And like uh, it, we, at Jared's old house, this was the case at, at the place in Point Grey. That was the case. It was just it was sort of a free for I mean, they, they weren't there half the time. So that was cool. And I don't know what. I, th- I think maybe they started kicking us out, which is why we went to Robin's house because we were sort of like, there would be a lot of dudes there. Like it wasn't even just four or five. Like there would be a, a gang of dudes staying over there and just coming in and out all weekend long. And I think they finally got fed up with it. Um, and so we just went to Robin's house and they were much more cool about it, or at least Miss Strachan was. 
I don't know. Robin's dad was an older Scottish guy who did not say anything. And I, I feel like maybe he was annoyed because it seemed like something that would annoy him. He thought we were yeah. ridiculous, but like he, he never, he, it never changed anything because yeah. Pat Strachan would let us do anything. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, this this is kind of uh, a, a period where, where I guess maybe you guys really start dialing into like super fast, tight, proficient kind of hardcore. Uh, um, yeah. I'm wondering how how does it get to the point where you start shopping material? Like I'm, I'm interested, your first seven inch comes out through Moo Cow Records, which is yeah. um, a small and random, random record label uh, yeah. in Wisconsin. Yeah, Wisconsin. Yeah, it's in Wisconsin. Um, I forget how he got our demo, but it was uh, l- like we made, we recorded those songs that made up that first seven inch, those uh, big midget sessions. And I took a few of them and made like the, it was the demo 98 or something, 97 maybe. I don't know. Um, and uh, and I honestly made like 25 of those. And I kind of, at that point, I remember I'd, I just kind of started figuring out that there were like bands on the East coast playing fast, hardcore and stuff. I think I remember uh, maybe stumbling across young blood records if they existed at that time and like, like rain on the parade and rancor and things like that. And so I knew this was uh, I, I knew this was a thing that was happening and I was like, okay, shit, this is still going on. There might be a place for us. And, and I would send tapes to, I'd trade tapes with people. I'd, uh, I'd send tapes to random, you know, bedroom hardcore demo, like uh, seven inch labels and stuff with really limited success other than people being like, oh, I like this or like, oh, here's my band in return. And I don't know how I ended up. I have I have the email somewhere. I printed it out from Moo Cow that was like that was like, I've heard your shit. I like it. Do you either want to do a seven inch of your own? do you want to do a split with this band from Massachusetts who were like some gnarly thugged out like double kick moshy fucking hardcore band? Or do you want to be on something called a world uh, hardcore comp? And I was like, well, I want to do our own seven inch. And he he was just like, okay. And uh, pressed up a couple hundred of those. And that was how that happened. I don't, I I, I don't feel like I sent him anything because I wouldn't have, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't in my uh, that wasn't showing up on my radar, nor was any band that was on Moo Cow showing up on my radar. Yeah. So I don't know how that made its way into his hands, but I, or at least I can't remember. playing shows in vancouver north vancouver uh lower mainland area like what what is the first out of town show that you can remember first out of town show was still in bc uh i think it was it did you guys self-esteem project come along with dbs like to like the okanagan or something was that or was that just yeah we we played a show in Kelowna. Yeah, yeah yeah and i remember that being like the first time we'd gone outside of the lower mainland i think and then uh and then other than island shows and stuff like that we went to the states twice both times in 1999 and uh, i think that was it and then like a handful of seattle shows 
And those, I like, we played the Auburn. We played the Annex with, like, Bane and Countervail and shit in Auburn. And I, but uh, the first one would have been that Kelowna show, I think. Yeah. I think. Do you remember, like, response, I guess, you know, from uh, an out-of-towner's perspective? Like, did, did those shows go over well? Like, uh, better than maybe Reserve 34 had done initially in Vancouver? or, or... Uh, I mean, initially, yeah. I don't think we really got a very good response out of town anywhere other than uh central or southern california uh, i think there was there was enough of uh it wasn't much at all at the time because i think sort of your your orange county throwdown adamantium shit was really big then and mm-hmm. faster stuff just wasn't happening um but yeah like remember we played a show in paso robles in uh at the boys and girls club central california and that was with like faster hardcore bands and that went well and that was somewhere where people were like oh we like you like we'd like to buy your merch and your tapes and shit and then there was some stuff in southern california where things went okay but other than that seattle didn't like us very much i think we were kind of too goofy and fast for them seattle was very serious and about wearing black and like took themselves very seriously at the time and so we didn't really fit there um uh portland was sort of a wash for that kind of thing then um we we were treated well in portland certainly and then uh i guess in redding california we did okay too because there was always kind of this weird connection there like burden started that but i still know guys who grew up in reading i still talk to them like guys that i met through reserve at like 1999 yeah. and so we did pretty well there we played a couple times i think but other than that no we weren't people just thought we were fucking weird canadians who were playing way too fucking fast like yeah, <laughs> yeah. on that first west coast tour is, is that when you meet the carry-on guys yeah, the, that that show uh, we played in Paso Robles, which was like the first out of town show where we did okay. Uh, that was with um, Carry On and Stand Your Ground and a few other bands. I don't remember, but uh, Carry On at that point uh, was a different band than what it was. And but I met um, I met Todd, who wasn't in Carry On at the time, went on to be Carry On. He was in Stand Your Ground at that time. I met Todd that night. And I met Corey, who was in Carry On uh, that night, and that's how my connection with those guys started. Then, uh, like we were all like me and Todd were seventeen at the time. I think Corey would have been like twenty or something, and that was sort of it. I remember they they were like, "Oh, you guys are kind of trying to do this fast break thing," and I was like, "Cool, yeah, whatever." That like, the, I mean, we're into them too, and uh, but it was just cool to have people be like, "Okay, we see what you're doing here." Yeah. Um, and uh but yeah that was sort of where that connection started for sure and then i started like uh corresponding with those dudes and trading records and shit like that but yeah 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 so how does that pivot like through through reserve 34 like you're also occasionally playing in some other bands you play in burden uh from yeah kind of kind of the surrey area kind of thing straight edge hardcore band um eventually you do move down to california to join Mm. carry on like how how did that Mm. happen so like yeah 1999 i would have met those guys uh and i just kept in touch with todd um talking a lot on like aim and shit back then um and uh the next year 
I went out on a really fucking terrible tour with this band Face Tomorrow, uh, which was a bunch of Vancouver kids. And talk about dark marks on my permanent record. I don't like that demo. But um, like uh, we went and for some fucking reason did a six week tour on a, on a fucking demo. And it was horrible. It was a real hard time. Uh, but that we played in Southern California, the PCH club, I think with carry on. And then um, uh, carry on's drummer, Nat, he went on to play in that band, the adored, um, he had, uh, he'd left the band at that time. Uh, they told me he wasn't interested in playing music anymore that he was, he's in this relationship. He didn't want to do that anymore. That's how it was pitched to me. And, uh, and they were like, he's left his drums. Uh, he says, you can use them. Uh, do you want to come and fill in for us on this tour with count me out? Uh, cause Karen had just put out, uh, the roll with the punches seven inch on, um, on teamwork. And so after the Face Tomorrow tour was done, I flew down there and we flew out to the East Coast, lost all of our merch because all our merch said carry on on it. And so I think it caused some <laughs> baggage mix ups and it ended up in fucking Texas. And uh, we did uh, we did an East Coast tour with uh, with Count Me Out, a uh, few shows really it was like a week. Um, and then Striking Distance was on that, too. And then I came home and then uh, I remember Todd called and he was like, do you, we're going to record a record. Do you want to come down here and be in the band? I was like, fucking sure. So I got on a Greyhound and I went to LA and I moved into a house on Curson Ave just off Melrose um, with Ryan George and a bunch of other older hardcore dudes. And yeah, we, I just started playing in that band down there. Yeah. What was that so like I, in general? Because that's, that's that's like the first time you've moved out of your parents, and that's a pretty pretty yeah. drastic uh, change of scenery. Like, what what did it feel like? Uh, maybe from a personal level, and I think I'll bring that back to Reserve Thirty Four in a second. But like, yeah. just just the actual experience of you know leaving Canada uh, and, well, and I mean, living in California. What was that like? It was. I mean, it was a real sort of like. I mean, here I was, this sort of soft-handed Canadian boy who like like I really liked being involved in hardcore in Vancouver and stuff, but it like, it wasn't really what I wanted. It wasn't as gnarly as I wanted. It wasn't as extreme as I wanted. It was, it, it was really quite soft as far as I was concerned at the time. And I was always looking for something else. So then when I came down to California and like ended up adjacent to all sorts of crazy shit and hanging out with cool and crazy people, it was, like I really had to learn a lot of stuff very fucking quickly. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like I was, uh, so I moved in originally, I was just sleeping on Todd's floor and you know, Woodland Hills in the Valley. And I, but I mean, like even outside of hardcore, I was hanging out with all these kind of nuts people and like, uh, and I was having a really good time. Like it was fucking great, but I didn't, I didn't really have a frame of reference for how to deal with that. Um, and uh but i mean i learned quickly uh but it was what i wanted right i was like this is this is the hardcore i want to be involved in right like I, I was like this is a lot this is a lot cooler it's a lot more aggressive it's sort of a lot more extreme i found it liberating too because i think uh at the time vancouver was um pretty characteristically uh like for lack of a better term politically correct at the time and all of a sudden all that was gone like I was in California, you can say, do whatever you want. You can be an absolute piece of shit. It was fucking fantastic. And, yeah. 
And so I, I really, I really enjoyed that, but yeah, like it was, I, I was definitely an outsider. I was, de- it was definitely very alien to me and I had to learn very quickly um, how to operate in, in that environment and in that scene. Cause it's like uh, it, it, it's a lot more real, I think, than, than certainly Vancouver and being goofy at ceiling hall for sure. Yeah. 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 Sure. What was it like, yeah. I, I guess, uh, you know, playing, uh, you know, a, a quote unquote, like harder, scene like like what did that mean what did that look like i found it very exciting definitely at the time um and like rather than sort of i mean in vancouver at the time there was an emphasis on uh, on sort of goodness and justness and like uh like that throughout everything everyone was doing there was always something positive coming from it and that wasn't the case in california at all like um people could be violent that was fantastic you could be arrogant and elitist like fucking great like if you could get away with it then do it and uh and and i that was a huge relief to me definitely at that age for sure um i I really liked that it was like i said it was liberating and uh and playing those shows the, the reactions were way harder people stepping on people's heads and punching each other in the face and like i really got into that and i i thought it was great um i mean i still do to be perfectly honest but um yeah no it was fucking sick and uh yeah i had a great time it was super cool and uh yeah it was just it was way more of a buzz it was way more of a buzz than i was getting at home and i think that's sort of it was what i'd been looking for for a long time because yeah hardcore and stuff was cool at home but i'd always seen this other stuff i'd always seen things like oh well, it's kind of like this elsewhere and I kind of got hints of that. Like I remember we went to the Bay area, the Bay area at that time was this whole, was a whole different animal, but it was, it was really extreme at the time. And like, it was scary. And like, but I, I liked that. And I thought that was cool. But then Southern California offered something like that, that was built more for people like me. It was more this sort of uh, suburban, you know, skater, hardcore kid, white kid, like dude uh, thing. And so I fit right in like right away. And uh I mean, I've been in as much as I could. I was still kind of a weird, goofy Canadian for sure for a while there. Um, but yeah, no, it was, I, I really liked it. And I felt like, uh, like, I'd, like, I've always, like I've been saying earlier, I've been trying to find people when I was growing up to be like, oh, I want to play this type of music with you. I have this idea of what this type of music was. And then when I was down there, it's like, oh, we're doing that. Like, we're doing this type of music that like, that you've thought about. Like, we're all going to do it. We're all on board for it. Like we don't have to adjust it for anybody. We're going to do this. And so that was, that's what was cool about it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What, what do you remember about, uh, I guess the the decision to leave uh, and and how that affected reserve 34? Like what, what was this, the state of like, did you think the band was over when you moved or was it just on pause? I think I kind of thought it was on pause. I don't know. I didn't know how long I'd be down there. I came back a couple of times, uh, like to stay for a couple weeks and things like that but yeah I, I don't think i i don't think i finished it outright i can't remember having a conversation with anybody about it at all i think i just left and but i mean at that point in my life for a lot of my life i never really thought further than two or three weeks in advance right so i certainly wasn't going to uh yeah i don't know I, i'm sure i i left it open but uh i don't even remember saying goodbye to a lot of people i don't know like, I think I, I had, a, I had a one-way ticket, but I wasn't entirely sure what was going on. I think initially I was just going to go down and record this, this record. And, uh, 
but then it just sort of went from there and I ended up staying for a minute and doing that. So, yeah. Um, And then when I did come back, I wanted to do something else. I had all sorts of plans to do other stuff, but you know, reserve was there. So I figured I, I keep going with that. That's sort of what I was thinking. Yeah. Did, did the band, I guess maybe, maybe so you moved back uh, like 2001, 2000, late 2000, something like that. Uh, It would be, it was like mid or later 2001 because I recorded the, I recorded that record with carry on in like late spring 2001. So, yeah, I think it would maybe would have been that fall or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah. How had that experience, that whole experience kind of like changed your outlook once you did, you know, settle back into Vancouver, you know, whether that's, you know, just um, from a musical perspective with Reserve 34 or just, you know, having that taste of something like a little more extreme, like you said, like, how did that change your mindset Mm. when you came back to Vancouver? Uh, I mean, I wanted to do more stuff like that. I felt like I could do that at home. And I think that's sort of where like go it alone and that stuff ultimately came from. And I had those plans in my head. I remember taking a bus home and like coming up with shit in my head and being like, okay, well now I've got to do something else. Like maybe I'll have a band that sounds like this or like that. Um, But it was all, I was like, okay, now I know, now I know how to be in a real hardcore band. Now I know how it works. Now I know what shows look like. And, uh, and like, and now I know, now i know what i need to do it was sort of this like learning experience for me which is kind of funny because i think those dudes looking back on it none of us knew what the fuck we were doing we didn't know how to record we didn't know what to do but like it was fucking ridiculous but uh um but at that point i was okay now i've got this new toolkit i can take home and i can do proper bands and stuff but i mean yeah but reserve was there and so i was going to do that anyway i mean i kind of i kind of remember um Actually, one of the times I came back from L.A. for like a couple of weeks, I think Reserve played a show somewhere in like Surrey or something. And that was one of those ones that's like sometimes cited as a final show because I think Matt was grumpy at it and may have said that. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. Um, but like it was always there. And so when I was home, I had these plans to do other stuff. And like I was either going to do something in Vancouver or Seattle or something. And, uh, but reserve was there and that was my band. So I went back to it at least for a minute for sure. But I don't think I ever had any, I I never thought that we'd, we'd tour or or put out proper, like put out big records or anything like that. I never thought it would be anything more than a logo thing, but it was my band and it was my friend. So for sure. skipped over like the time frame of of rain city games but but i think that's okay oh, yeah. like, get, like getting into yeah. just the end of the band so reserve 34 mm-hmm. you do this one last seven inch called game over mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. which is uh a, a pretty straight like rain city games was a very fast kind of melodic hardcore record um yeah uh, very streamlined uh kind of thing game over is really strange and irregular shifts and and melodies yeah. like uh almost like an ink and dagger, like spookiness yeah. to, to yeah, some yeah. of it. Like yeah, what, what can you say about this period of the band, which also incorporates Mark into, into the band, Mark Palm on, on second guitar. Yeah. I, uh, I'd been close with Mark. Um, I was getting close with Mark at that point. 
we actually connected in LA because he was living in LA. And I remember I was working at Headline Records on Melrose and he came in and I was just working there. Well, shit, it's funny to see you here. And we'd like, we'd gotten close obviously in, in Vancouver with fucking Life Preserver and shit like that. But like, uh, uh, I feel like at that point, like when I came home, I remember calling him up to hang out, which like one-on-one, which I feel like might not have happened before then. I don't know. But I remember us connecting in LA and like him coming over in LA and stuff like that. Um, and I remember going to uh, like, as soon as I came back from like recording that carry on record and stuff, I came over to his house. I gave him a copy of that. I was like, here's this thing I just did. And I was like, do you want to be in reserve 34? And he was like, okay, yeah, absolutely. Cause he liked the band since he was young. And, uh, and that was sort of how he got in. I don't know why I asked him. I don't like, I don't know if I cleared that with anybody or anything, but yeah. I definitely just, I remember that being like, okay, you're going to do this. And, uh, and then the only two songs on that spooky seven inch, uh, that aren't spooky and strange are the ones he wrote, uh, the ones that are sort of more straightforward and you can hear them like the guitar tone is completely different because it's Mark playing up yeah. front. The rest of them are sky being insane and doing all sorts of strange yeah, things. Really esoteric, and, uh, and, weird, weird yeah, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and that and the, the the lyrics get really strange and that's all sky. But like the the ones that are straightforward on that, like arguably almost sort of proto go it alone shit are Mark writing. And I think I wrote lyrics for a couple of them. Yeah. I was, I was actually going to say yeah. that like instance is one of the Mark ones. It's, it's, it's on, it's a, a very short song kind of thing. It does yeah. feel like um, eventually you guys yeah. do a statement with go it alone. Like it feels like a dry yeah. run for that song specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I could. I haven't really thought about that, but I can hear what you're saying now, and I think about it. But yeah, that that song is just me and Mark, like fully. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I know that that makes a lot of sense. Though, I mean, Go Alone happened not that long after that, so yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, I don't. But maybe you'd have to ask Mark about that. He wrote the music. Maybe that. Maybe it came from there. I'm not sure. Making making this record. Did you know this was the end? Like it is called game over, but yes. during the making of it, yeah. did you think this is, this is indeed game over? Yeah. 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 I, at least I did. And I, I'm sure we talked about it, I think. So yeah, that was going to be it. I mean, yeah. Mark was kind of annoyed about that, I think, but yeah, yeah just that was the supposed band. to be yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. But, well, I mean, it was, I don't know. Reserve's a strange thing. And I think it, it had, like it had been six years. I think we played a grand total of 60 shows and it was it, like, we weren't going to keep doing it. You know, I don't think we were ever going to keep doing it at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I quit or I can't remember exactly how it ended, but yeah. yeah. So, so you do, I guess this is, you know, coming around to, we, we, you play this last show 20 years ago next week. Like, so yeah, yeah. Do, do, it's at video in, which at the time was a poppin' kind of place on main yeah. street. That's where a lot of downtown yeah. punk shows happened. Like, uh, yeah. do you, do you, you, you kind of preface this that you don't really remember the day, but is there anything yeah. in there? In terms of that show? Yeah. I mean, I remember, I do remember, uh, Kyle DeVille wearing a garbage can. I yeah. think for that show was that, it? Yeah. yeah. Well, he, With, he, he yeah. hollowed out, uh, the bottom of a garbage can. Uh, poked his head through that. Cut a couple armholes. Uh, I actually looked. At, I have. I have a roll of film that I took that night. I. I, I looked at them just before this. He's wearing that. Uh, he's wearing like he's jaguar, like spandex, jaguar right? print leggings. Yes. Yeah. And then yeah, I yeah. think it says like reserve mosh team or something. Something to that effect. Yeah. On and, it. Yeah. And he also. 
he also drew a silhouette of the Vancouver skyline, I believe, yeah. on the on paper and stuck it to it Beautiful. at some point. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Th- those were his. Uh, yeah, his leopard print leggings or jaguar leggings from uh, from his time flirting with the uh, sort of gunshot hairdo locust vibe that he did for a <laughs> second there, but yeah. Um, no, I do remember that, and I don't know. I, like you, you sent me the the recording uh, yeah. a while back, I think, and yeah, I, I listened ago. to it, it, and it's it's a lot better than I remember. And uh, and Matt is on point that night, definitely. Like that, that's what I really think when I listened to it. I was quite yeah. impressed with that. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Maybe yeah, that's. No. But you, I, I think we kind of started with this. Like I, I asked you what, yeah. what Sky was like. What, what, can, what can you say about Matt Smith? Uh, mon, mononym, all one word. <laughs> all one word. Yeah. What can I say about him? I mean, yeah. he's one of my oldest friends. He's one of the best friends. Um, like I think uh, we've been tight pretty much, like since we were thirteen, barring a couple years, like when I was fucking off in LA and filling in for a lot of hardcore bands in the states and shit like that but other than that we've been we've been down hanging out for decades at this point and i don't know he's he's one of my closest friends for sure yeah um yeah i don't know and like we've lived in england together we lived here together we've uh, i don't know he's he's awesome i like the guy um <laughs> as, as as an artist yeah. as a front man you said he was on point that night like as a front man what was his vibe yeah uh he he's uh like very confident um like quick with it like he was he was funny and stuff which i liked about it um and uh like like just keeping energy up it was it it was sort of it's something i could never do definitely but like uh it was almost like doing crowd work half the time when we were playing like we never really had uh it was very very strange but it, it worked really well with us like we never really had any sets where we would where we would play blocks of songs. We were, we didn't have a fixed set. We didn't, we didn't plan anything out, but then we had Matt up front who would just sort of fill space and fill time and talk shit and be funny and be charismatic and stuff like that. Uh, Which I don't think the other three of us couldn't have done at all. Like we don't have that in us for sure. So, yeah, I don't know. monkeys oh shit a drumstick went flying so uh we're gonna have to start that one again this is a this is actually our theme of the night since we're breaking up we have no reputation to maintain at all so we're actually completely fucking with you this is all intentional something something that i only i i think i kind of knew this at the time but something that was planned by i believe matt smith is there are a number of reserve 34 songs named after characters from cats yeah, that's that's uh, that's Matt. I think it has to do with T.S. Eliot or something. Yeah, I think like because uh, that's where that's where they come from in Cats. But uh, yeah, that's all Matt. I don't know what his deal was. He tried yeah. to get one in on like every every uh, every release. I feel yeah, like, but I never really knew what he. McCavity, Rum Tugger, Rum yeah. Tug, Jenny Any Dots. Uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just looking at some. Uh, I don't think there's one. I'm just looking at cats characters here. Uh, Grizabella, yeah. missed opportunity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Gus, the theatrical cat, again, missed opportunity. <laughs> <That> was... <laughs> yeah. 
No, I mean, it, to, to be fair, Matt does like cats, not the uh, not the musical, but the animal. So I don't know. Maybe it comes from that. Yeah. Um, in in, in uh, general, like, um, I, I guess the band does do a couple of reunion shows, but but having capped it, you know, after after six years outside mm. of, you know, a few months when you're living in California kind of thing. Like, what what do you think? Mm personally like to you what what is the the legacy of reserve 34 in uh i i, I don't know how to say it any softer than this but in your heart like what, is, what does reserve heart, 34 mean to you i don't know it was it was a starting point for me for sure uh and it was it, it was it was doing what i could with what i had to hand when i was a kid and i'm glad it worked out the way i did and i met some i met at least one of my closest friends through it for sure yeah. um I don't think it was ever what I wanted it to be because uh, because I, I wanted to be in a straight up hardcore band and uh, mm. Reserve Thirty Four was uh, was a compromise on that for me. You know, mm. like it was. I found some guys who have interests that align with mine or are kind of adjacent to mine, and uh, and we'll, we'll make music that is as close as possible to what I want to make. Uh, that these guys will sort of let me make and uh and and it but it taught me a lot right and i i i do appreciate that it got me through high school for sure and yeah it was it was some really good times i think the the unfortunate thing about it for me too is like that i i i mean you know this but other people might like i had a really big accident in 2004 and a lot of reserve well all of reserve takes place before that and mm -hmm. Like I cracked my head really hard during that. And I don't know, life changes after things like that. And, uh, and so a lot of uh, reserve, I think maybe in ways that would mean more to other people in the band has, has faded to obscurity to, a, to, a, to more of a degree yeah. with me, just because I don't think I, I, I don't think I have that same connection with those formative years that a lot of other people do because there's that big, it gets severed in 2004 when i'm 22 and so that's uh like i it i don't think it means the same thing to me as it does maybe to other people in the band or to other people who liked the band and stuff like that um just simply because i don't have that connection like that was that was a different dude in a different time doing different things and so uh yeah it's like it, i i don't think i quite remember it the way that uh that some other people do for sure yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if that makes sense. No, man, but, I get that. I yeah. get that. Um, yeah. I, I think getting into Goat Alone is kind of like a whole different can of worms. But I, I want to touch oh, yeah, on one sure. quick thing just about this is yeah. that um, as you're in Goat Alone, you do this split seven inch with Blue Monday, oh, yeah. another Vancouver hardcore band, where both yeah. of you uh, cover Reserve 34 songs. And that's that's a strange, that's a strange thing. Like, can, can you tell me what, what, what went behind that decision and what did it feel like covering your own band? I think, fuck, I don't know. Like <laughs> some reviewer referred to that record as the reserve 34 awareness project, which I think is pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, like, I think at that time uh, it's well with goat alone. And then like, blue monday was doing this too like i really started pushing like vancouver as a thing like when i when i started getting out on the road and on tour i was like like people in vancouver were always doing like they were calling themselves northwest hardcore or some stupid shit or they were like they, they were never 
claiming this city, like thinking it wasn't cool enough or whatever. And like, once I started getting out on tour, I was like, well, people are claiming like the most bogus shit. And like, oftentimes when shit gets attention, it's not necessarily one band. It's a group of friends from a place that are putting out a bunch of music. And I saw that and I was like, whoa, I should do that. So maybe I'll just start leaning into this. Like we're Vancouver hardcore. We're from Vancouver, this, that, and the other, just like aggressively. And like that record obviously is like this super Vancouver record. It's got Vancouver on the front. It's unapologetically like that. Like, and that was just a continuation of that. And so I was like, well, let's, let's do another Vancouver band. It was a fucking weird thing to do, but I don't know. It seemed to make sense at the time. And like, especially because me and Mark are on it and we both played in that band. Like, yeah, it's fucking strange, but um, Matt, Matt Smith sings on it too. Like he does, yeah, and Matt, like, sings he, it, like, Matt Smith does like a <laughs> guest appearance on what he, yeah, did. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that that was sort of my thinking behind it. Like, that's the way I thought through all those years. I was like, well, this were my band isn't getting big. Like, it's, it's my it's my group of friends. It's it's my town scene that's getting attention. That's what I want to happen. So, yeah. like, uh, it was a continuation of that. In retrospect, it's fucking weird. You're right. But <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, I, I like that record. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was I was thinking about it because um, I, I was texting with Adam uh, Mitchell. Um, I was yeah. watching Clueless just one night and then just yeah. uh, the ending credits is uh, do, you, do you remember the Smoking Popes? Do you know who that is? Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Anyways, they're the closing song on it. I just kind of went through like a wiki scroll, like on my phone as I'm sitting on the couch watching this movie. And there was a smoking Pope's uh, tribute compilation, which features like multiple songs from dudes that used to be in smoking Pope's kind of thing. And then I told that to Adam. He's like, oh, that would be weird. That would be like if Lucas like uh, did like a life preserver song, like in Goat Alone. And then we were both like, wait a second. (laughs) He has done this. He has done this exact same thing. I mean, I think especially at that time, I was a very arrogant person. Yeah. So I think that I like that would have like me covering my own band and popularizing my own band is like, like that would have been nothing to me. Like I was much more arrogant than that, like in day to day, especially when it came to hardcore. So like that would have wouldn't have moved the needle in, in terms of me. So yeah, no. is the greatest Vancouver hardcore record the Pipe Bomb Seven Inch? I actually I think it is. Yeah, I actually just spun it because we were talking about it the other day, and uh, yeah, no, it's it's like it's really well done. It's fucking super solid hardcore. <laughs> you yeah. listen to it. It's, it's an angry record, amazing. man. Yeah, yeah. so scuzzy. It's fucking it. great. Yeah, it's it's really good and. Uh, there are what there's eight or nine songs on it or something um and uh there's a lot more of from that session too they exist on a tape somewhere but there's even more beyond that and like uh i know they did it in a 24-hour lockout session at slack and uh and recorded like 30 some odd songs live off the floor and i'd love to hear that one day but yeah no it's it's fucking amazing that that record is yeah i'd say it's the best vancouver hardcore record i think more vancouver kids should listen to that oh for man. sure yeah so yeah it, that it, maybe maybe that's part you know like you, you said that uh, vancouver was kind of like a fun loving kind of goofy hardcore town but like that yeah. pipe on yeah. man that is that is full-on offensive angry hardcore. yeah yeah and those guys were pretty raw dudes you know and they were they were east fan dudes i don't know i i thought they were cool at the time i think everyone was kind of a little scared of them because they like weren't 
from that they weren't from the uh the punk rock tradition of the time at all um and they were just sort of real east band dudes and yeah it was it was fucking yeah it was cool to see them and i got yeah i listened to that record a lot i got that record from dave spicer who played drums in that band and I just thought it was so fucking cool. There was actually talk of me and Dave used to talk about doing a reserve pipe bomb split because yeah. I used to hang out at the hot shop, like skull skates where, cause that was my local skate shop where Dave worked and we would just sit around and I'd punish him about hardcore when I was like 15. Yeah. Cause he, he like knows his shit. Well, the people in that band obviously know their shit when you listen to it. Right. Yeah. They're like, Oh, you, you actually like have some background in this. And he really did. And he knew a lot of like, shit about youth crew and fucking i don't he liked like chain of strength and stuff and uh and so i would sit around and punish him and i remember us talking about how we should do a reserve pipe bomb split but of course that never happened but that would have been super sick well (laughs) what what i think we can do is um you said that there's you know 30 plus pipe bomb songs hanging in the ether somewhere (laughs) i i have this blank cassette of the demos that haven't been released like it seems like a foolproof plan to press up yeah. a thousand copies of the reserve for <laughs> pipe bomb seven inch that people are dying for. I feel like it would be relatively easy to find Dave Spicer. And if anyone in, in pipe bomb would have a record, a recording of the record, it would be him. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> we just have to find him. We have to go to the hot shop. We can ask Petey if he knows where Dave Spicer is, put us in touch. Uh, I, yeah. I could I could talk your ear off about just Reserve 34 minutia all day long, I'm yeah. sure. Uh, but maybe maybe we should uh, cap it on that. Like, sure. uh, yeah. th- thanks for getting to this, man. This was fucking really cool. Yeah. Like, it's it's a lot of stuff that I've partially forgotten for one. Yeah, and it's no, just man, Reserve 34, very important band to me. Like, um, one one of the sessions that I is kind of like I love Game Over. I think that's probably my favorite of the bunch. But there's that session, the first one you did at Big Midget, three songs, yeah. UPC, Burn yes. Down the Fire, and yeah. Pinball. You guys did yeah. that the same, like literally the same week as right uh, as Self Esteem uh, Project, Self-esteem my first Project band. Was- uh, we did our demo. So you did it on Big Midget on one side of Francis. And we and did you guys it were at two blocks the, down uh, at, two blocks down at, at, at Josh and Steve's house on Francis Street, which is a place that you the, eventually move into. So there's 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 yeah, me and me and Mark lived there for a couple yeah. years. Yeah. So I kind of so. remember that week and and those two sessions as kind of like we would record our respective things and then just kind of screw yeah. around on in East Van just for the night kind of thing. So I, I have yeah, fun, no. fun, fun memories of that in particular. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. No, I remember that. I have pictures from that actually of us hanging out on the front porch of, uh, of what do you call it? Francis street, like yeah. uh, the Francis street punk house. I have that somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I, no. would, I would be stoked to see that. It was a solid that. weekend. Yeah. I'll see if I can find them. That was a very good time. Yeah. That was, I don't know. We, I guess we never ended up using those songs anywhere, anywhere really, but it's, it's on yeah. the, it's on the CD. It's on the everything. Is CD. it okay? Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Man, no, Burn no, down no, the fire was not good. The other two are good. Yeah. <laughs> UPC is solid. Yeah. Um, all of this stuff is technically out of print. Like, do, do would you ever? We're kind of in the the day and age where people are putting their discographies on Bandcamp just for the for the hell of it. Like, is is this something that you could see? You know, putting out there in in some form. There's there's a whole concept I, that people haven't heard. Yeah, I mean, I, I I guess I'd put it out there. I'm I'm sure Matt would be keen to put it out for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, 
to put it on Spotify or something even. Yeah, I'm sure there might be some interest. Who knows? I mean, I feel like it's, it's so far gone that it would only be maybe a hundred people from that era who might nostalgically listen to it. I'm not sure if kids would be into it, but yeah, yeah I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested to see if, if it had any traction, it's really fucking weird hardcore when you listen to it. Like even yeah. the stuff that's straightforward is, is odd. Yeah. Like, some of the regular stuff to, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're just starting to practice again with madness cartel. Yeah. 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 So that'll start next week or the week after, I think, actually. Yeah. When was the, so when was the last time we'll put, you played a show? Uh, it was Valentine's Day 2020, before, right before the pandemic. And that was Madness Cartel's first show. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that was it. And before that, it had been fucking years. Yeah. Like, I, I, did, like I didn't play at all from, like... 2011 to 2015 like full stop i don't think i touched a drumstick so yeah yeah, there wasn't much going on there but yeah and then i just started again and then the world shut down for a minute so you know yeah hopefully that'll not happen yeah Yeah. you you think you're gonna play more shows i'd love to i mean me and funds were talking about touring and shit like that i've i've talked to you know people we know and shit about making various things happen so you know it would be nice to i wouldn't mind it uh i miss it for sure playing playing live and stuff is super fucking stressful now i never used to care about it but yeah i don't know it's what, 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 uh, i'd uh, like to do it, it again stressful? i don't know i never used to fucking think about it but now like i'm like oh shit i could fuck up there's people looking at me it's really basic shit but like i never would have thought about that before yeah. I just would have been like, oh, I'm the shit. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, uh, uh, you're getting humble as, as you age, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Which is probably good. Which is probably good compared to how I was for a while. So, yeah, it's probably m- more beneficial to my day-to-day life to not be a total asshole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that was Lucas McFadden of Reserve 34, currently of Madness Cartel and Tilted. I want to thank him again for getting into the early history of Reserve 34, a handful of things that I hadn't really thought about in years. Uh, that, that was uh, honestly a lot of fun for me. If you'd like to hear some more Reserve 34, that's awesome. You can find some of the stuff streaming unofficially on YouTube. I, I see that the Rain City Games 10 inches up there. Uh, the discography CD is on there as well. Our friend Matt Barber filmed um, the band playing at Southwall in the summer of 1996. That is on there as well. Uh, yeah, check out some Reserve 34 if you can. Once again, you can sign up for the Gut Feeling email newsletter over at buttondown.email slash gutfeeling. That's where you can find the full archive currently, including podcasts, gear talks, interviews, and more. I hope you check it out. Uh, thanks for checking this out. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to cut it right here. I'm, I'm probably going to listen to Reserve 34 for the rest of the day. And uh, yeah, take it easy. Hey, this is a moldy oldie. It's an old song and it sucks. It's called Tough Guy. It's the first song we ever played.
Okay. 